In this episode of 92i Talks, actors Ewan McGregor, Jennifer Connelly, and Dakota Fanning discuss their new film, American Pastoral, adapted from the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel by Philip Roth, with Real Pieces moderator Annette Insdorf. The conversation was recorded on October 18, 2016, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Not only are we all very happy to meet these talented artists, but relieved to see that they're alive and well and <laughs> after a, a rather harrowing, dramatic experience. Um, I'm going to start with Ewan McGregor, who's obviously both the star and director. And since this is your very first feature behind the camera, first I was curious, would you have been able to direct this film had you not been starring in it? In other words, was, was it predicated on the fact that you were the actor and then you could be the director? I was, yes, the actor first. And when I, got, when I became the director, I certainly didn't think to recast myself. <laughs> because um, nobody could play this part like I could. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> no, but... But partly because I want, I, you know, for the three years that I was attached to play the Swede only, um, I dreamt of the story and I, I longed to play him. I, I, I really I felt like it was a character I hadn't played before. And um, so, yeah, there was never a moment where I thought, oh, I'd, I... Also, I never felt before or during, or even now, that it was um, a bad idea to direct and act. In fact, the opposite. And, and in all of our publicity that we've been doing recently, you know, it's often a question I get asked. Well, like, why, you know, wasn't it? And the, the inference being that it's, that it's very tricky or difficult. And my experience of it was in actual fact the opposite, that it was much, e the, the three days that I didn't act were the three last days of the shoot where we shot the funeral and the two reunion days were, were the reunion scenes were split over two days. And I found that was trickier to discuss the scene with the actors and then walk away from them behind a monitor was in actual fact sort of slightly more awkward than discussing the scene with the actors and then going on set and doing the scene with them. It seemed to be quite... It was only once or twice I forgot my lines because I was enjoying the work so much, but it did happen. In the big scene at the beginning with Lou, Lvov, and with Jennifer where, where he's grilling Dawn, I, I only had two lines, Dad, and then Dad. Those were my... <laughs> Those were my lines, and I was standing, you know, as the Swede is described so beautifully in Roth's book, standing off to the side and not really giving any help to Don at all, and I was watching them act, and I was just inside, I was just going, oh, yes, this is, oh, this is great. And, uh, and then they both stopped, and I thought, that's an interesting pause. Oh, yeah, that's an interesting pause. And they both looked at me and went, you, and it's your, your line. <laughs> So only once or twice did it sort of get in the way, if you like. But you know, that's a perfect example of why I think the direction of this film is so strong. It's a tiny decision, but obviously the director and the character are both feeling pride mm. in the people around them. So what do you do? You have the camera on Dawn standing, and when she sits down again, refusing to leave, that's the first time that we actually see your face, mm. your character's face. And it works because it's like, you know, you understand the dynamics of the scene and you're letting them run with the emotion of it. You're just kind of pulled back. Right. And it's not always the case, but certainly in that moment, that is the Swede's role. And, and it, you, can, you can speculate why. It's, it's sort of, um, 
It's a tough decision that he, that he makes, and he really leaves Dawn in the lurch there with his, fa with his father. He doesn't step in. And we know, as, as the readers of the, of, of the novel, that, that Lou already turned down one, one fiancé, you know, somebody that the Swede wanted to marry. So the stakes are quite high. I guess if Lou says no, I guess, I don't know. And it, so it's a passive, it's very passive and, um, and, and not very helpful to poor old Dawn, who's sitting there, you know, struggling away with Lou. But she holds her own with Lou, and of course, Jennifer Connelly holds her own with Peter Riegert, an actor that <laughs> we quite love and, and know here in New York. Now, for Jennifer Connelly, I gather that you are associated with this project even longer than um, Ewan McGregor or anyone else, because there was a, a, an iteration of this about eight years ago or so, where you were cast, your husband Paul Bettany was cast as the Swede, um, and Evan Rachel Wood, I think, was supposed to be the daughter I read at one time. And then it fell apart. Did you believe that it would reconstitute itself? Did you have faith that this film would get made and at what interval? Um, to be honest, it kind of, it, it fell apart and it was pretty much off my radar for most of these years. Um, I, I was not privy to um, the work that uh, Tom and Gary were doing, trying to get it put back together, um, or, or to make it happen all those years between. But I was very happy to see it come back around, because um, it was something that I had felt very strongly about. I was really captivated by Dawn, and thought it was a, you know, a really exciting prospect, being able to play her, to being able to play such a complex character over such a long period of time. Um, and to be able to spend time with her over the, that, the, you know, the course of her life. Um, <clears throat> so I was very happy to see it again. Sure. And actually, you're, you're raising an interesting question, which is also for Dakota Fanning. This is a film that requires um, you to, well, you start out at, at this sullen 16-year-old, right? Mm -hmm. And then you're, you're playing her in her 40s, I and mean, you start out also at a very different point in time from where you end up. Now. I was wondering for you, in preparing to play this really complicated and, and challenging character, um, what kind of research did you do? What, how, how were you able to somehow take someone who on paper may not be all that sympathetic and make her your own? Um, I think I just let her, I, I, I didn't try to make make her sympathetic or to make her understandable or um, I kind of let those expectations go and I just wanted her to be the way she was written and to be unapologetic and to be uncompromising because that's the character. And um, so I kind of just went went there and, and never really thought about if the audience was going to like her or not, you know, because I don't think that's actually important, you know. Um, so I just sort of let her, let her be the way she was written, which is violent and t at times and angry, and um, and I kind of embraced that instead of worrying about how that was going to come across. Well, the last thing that Mary would want would be for us to just like her. And, yeah, exactly. So obviously <laughs> you got inside of that. But I'm I'm guessing I'm, I may be completely wrong about this that it's almost harder to then get rid of a character 
like Mary after playing her. In other words, that, that gets inside of you somehow because it's not like just playing another uptown girl or runaway girl or whatever. It's, it's, it, was it harder or? I have a really good separation between the, the work that I do and the characters that I play in my own life and myself. So that's never really been something that I have struggled with. Um, but like the scenes in the tenement when, when Mary's a Jane, that was, we were filming nights and we were working until like five in the morning. So that was an exhausting period of time and I really felt like I was pushing myself but it felt good, you know, it was something that I enjoyed. It was challenging and exciting and intense in a, in a good way. Well, and I can tell you that the intensity of that is very much felt by the viewer. Watching it tonight for the second time, I almost had to steal myself during that sequence because mm -hmm. I remember that I had trouble sleeping after seeing the film the first time mm -hmm. because that's, no, in, in a very good way in terms of the film's effect, if, if you accept it, that the basic thematic tension of this movie is a father-daughter story. I mean, if, with all due respect to the importance of Dawn, I mean, it's the quest, in a way, of Seymour Swede to not give up on this girl, and you don't know to what extent she will be able to fulfill that sense of being a daughter. And when, you know, when he goes into that hovel and, and sees how she lives, I, I, I could almost smell the place, I could almost feel how difficult it would be. And also I remembered a line from the novel. I mean, the novel presents it in a much more graphic way that when Seymour sees how her daughter is living and she, she removes, he, he vomits. I mean, he throws up in that space. And in a way, that's somehow, that was inside of me as I was watching it. And I think you did the right thing not to go graphically <laughs> all the way. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because it's the moment where he... When he, it's actually what we played the scene outside the house when he, when he looks in her mouth. And it was a, it's, a, it's an extraordinary piece of writing from Roth, but he, he's looking for the truth inside his daughter's face somehow. And he describes the, it's like the, the reality hits him finally that all is lost, I suppose. And he describes it for the, this animalistic smell that's coming from inside her somehow. And, um, yeah, he vomits on her. And uh, I don't know that you would have forgiven me for doing that in the movie. <laughs> I don't, it's a, there's some things that are best left in the novel form, you know. That would be one of them. Yes. But it's interesting, you know, they're really, you know, the, I thought John Romano did an extraordinary job adapting the novel for the screen. And, um, you know, my job really very much was to try and not let the film just be... Uh, a film that borrowed the story from Philip Roth's novel, but somehow represented it. And so I, I tried very hard to do that, you know, to, to make the film feel like the novel. I spent such a great deal of time with it. And we all, in different ways, did, and we all have our own interpretations of it, as everyone will hear. And in a way, my desire with these characters was to allow people to have their own opinion about them, you know, to be... To be able to, because I think in the in the novel, Roth is exploring so many different themes, and within all of those themes, so many different arguments, so many different angles, and I, even from one reading to the next, I could have a different opinion about certain things, and I wanted that for the film. I wanted people to be able to leave, you know, discussing it, talking. Oh, did, did, maybe Dr. Sheila had a point, and no, she was just jealous, or you know, I don't know. I want, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to write off Mary as being. Crazy, like there's a danger, I suppose, in the extreme 
Jainism, this extreme cultish way that she lives her life at the end, that we might just excuse her actions as a, an act of madness. And I didn't want that. I didn't want us to be able to excuse that. I wanted to understand why Mary does that. She's fighting for something. She's got the strength of her conviction that her father has. That's one thing he's given to her, I suppose. He's given her this extraordinary st- strength of um, conviction in the way she believe in, in her beliefs, albeit they're in totally different um, directions. And with with Dawn, I didn't want at the end because you know on paper Dawn, she has the line, "When are you going to give up on her?" She we see her having an affair, but I wanted to see Dawn as I didn't want to write her off at the end of the film, um, and and for the film to be about a, a man who's sort of abandoned by everybody, but I wanted to understand that, that Dawn survives Mary. She has, the, she has the strength, she allows herself to fall apart, and she, li- she rebuilds her life, and she survives Mary. And the Swede never does, you know, and you can, I want people to be able to argue that she's maybe the stronger character as a result, you know? Right. And actually, as long as you're bringing this up, um, in the novel, there's so much more, obviously, than one could put in a film of two hours. And there have been some very judicious deletions of a major kind. Um, I had to go back, and I, I didn't even get to read the whole novel. But I know that, at, at some point, Zuckerman is reimagining all of the life of Lvov. And in, we learn that he had a second marriage, that there were three sons even though in the novel, Zuckerman doesn't really deal as much with that, and the film basically ends with water, uh, the novel with Watergate and, yeah. and uh, th- the disintegration of the family. Th- sorry, I'll let you finish. Was, was, the, was the script always going to leave out all of that, or was a decision made during shooting? Yes, no, the script was always that. Yes, um, the, st- the novel is in three very particular sections. The first section is all Nathan Zuckerman he talks about, we get to know him at the reunion. There's lots of uh, detail about his past and lots of detail about the Swede. And, it's a, and it, the first section of the novel is really about Nathan coming to write about the Swede. And the second section and the third section, we must suppose, are what he did write about the Swede. So in actual fact, the story of the Swede and Don and Mary's life is written from the fantasy of the narrator, Nathan Zuckerman. It's quite interesting. I mean, he's obviously researched the subject. He's obviously spoken to Jerry at some length about it, but did Jerry know that his daughter asked her father to kiss her in the car? I don't know. Or is this this Nathan Zuckerman's fantasy about this man's life? That's all quite interesting. Um, And I I very much liked it. And I I, uh, unlike the novel, because Zuckerman doesn't really come back into it, at all at the end, but I felt like in a, in a more traditional filmmaking sense, he should. I quite believed in it. I think it's nice that he's at the funeral at the end and, um, and that he stops telling us the story. If you like, he starts telling us the story in the reunion scene at the beginning of the movie and he stops when, um, he, when his voiceover finishes about his thoughts about that we get people wrong. And then as the little coda, we have Mary arriving back at the funeral, which also doesn't happen in the novel. But I felt very strongly that um, it was the right ending for the movie and a, and a beautiful ending that she does indeed come back to her father. And I did want to ask about how you envisioned, because I was shocked at the end to see Mary from behind coming back. And I guess it, for me, raised the question, and only you can perhaps answer this, 
how did Mary, what happened to, to Mary in the interim from the last time we saw her to this? In your mind, is she coming back with that same veil on her face or is she coming back in a different way? Yeah, no, because there was, um, we had also filmed that you see Mary from the front um, over the casket. Um, and no, there was no veil. She's clearly not a Jane anymore. Um, Ewan describes her as a nun without her habit <laughs> in that scene. Um, so no, she's clearly uh, come back to some semblance of normal, she's had some semblance of a normal life from what we can see. Um, but I don't, I don't know what happened to her either <laughs> during that time. But yeah, clearly that, 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 phase in her life is over. And actually, I mean, the same question in a way for the character of Dawn, because the fact that we see Dawn at the funeral, but we don't know what happened in between, it's, I mean, I actually was wondering, did they stay together? You know, which I know from the novel is not the case, but in the film, it leaves the question open. I mean, yeah. was there any ambiguity for you about that? Or? Well, I didn't get... Um... I never got the sense from the film, the film, and probably because my interpretation was informed by what I knew happened in the novel, that, they, that their marriage had a happy ending. But I did feel very strongly that she, she really loved the Swede very deeply, and that part of her was, was, um, was always in love with him, and he was always, um, he was always her love. And... Um, and I think that, I think that she's, you know, so heartbroken in that scene, that, that the last scene that they have together when she says, when are you going to give up on her? I think she, in fact, feels abandoned by him. And to me, like the next sentence would have been, and be with me, and be with me here now so we can move forward together. I don't think it was ever that she wanted to leave him, it was that she literally couldn't survive looking to the past and living in this sort of nostalgic space. And she needed to look some, somehow to the future because it was literally killing her. Um, she was so devastated by losing, being, first being rejected by her daughter and then um, not knowing where she was and really believing that she didn't, even if she was alive, she didn't want anything to do with, with her mother anymore. Um, so, um, so I think that she, she always loved him, but I, I didn't get the sense that they had continued in their marriage. For the very sharp of uh, sharp people, I'm not wearing a wedding ring in the third shot with the umbrella in the rain. So I should have noticed yeah, it, see. but I didn't. Yeah. Um, now you mentioned a moment ago Philip Roth, and I I hope you don't mind my asking. Um, did you have any contact with him while making the film? Has he seen the movie? Do we know what he thinks? Um, yes, I didn't know. I've never met Philip Roth. I'd like to very much. Um, I didn't meet him in the preparations because uh, he'd signed off on the script and um, I, I, I got the impression that he didn't want to be involved in, or at least I wasn't led to believe that he wanted to be involved in the, f in the making of the film in any way. I don't think that he does in the films that have been made in the past. Um, and then, uh, I, but I, of course when we finished the film I knew maybe one day he was going to see it and <laughs> I, didn't, I, I didn't know when he was watching it, thank goodness, because I would certainly not have been able to sleep the night before. But I was told afterwards, and Tom Rosenberg, the head of Lakeshore, phoned me and said that um, Philip had seen the film that afternoon. And then he shared an, an email 
that uh, Philip wrote to his agents and said in the end of his email to please share this with the producers. And then the producers let me see it. And he, he liked the film very much. We all got a little framed version of his email <laughs> to put on our wall, you know, as proof. And uh, I was so relieved. I mean, because of, of my intention, of, I wanted it to feel Rothian, you know. I wanted the film to feel like Philip Roth's novel. I didn't... And to, to, to find out that he, you know, to read the words that he wrote about how he felt, he was very, very nice about the, some of the performances in the film and, um, and about the film itself. So I was very happy about that. It was like a way off. And I guess. I'm sure you are aware, as are many people, that Philip Roth has not always expressed his uh, appreciation for adaptations <laughs> of his work. Mm -hmm. yeah. So kudos to you that that, that is indeed mm -hmm. the case. I also read somewhere that the inspiration for your character is actually a real person. Um, I don't know if this is true, but Seymour Sweet Masson, M A S I N, yeah. who's apparently a, a legendary Jewish Mason. athlete. Mason? I oh, then wait, if somebody says yes, that, then... Are you there, sweet? Oh. <laughs> I met his son. I, I met his son, um, the Swede's son. And he came to the edit room where we were editing. And um, in fact, we, at one point, we thought we might use a, a montage at the beginning of the film of, of a period post-war feel. And um, he sent us some footage of the real Swede um, with his children. And the Swede is a real, in, in Weequake High School, where Philip Roth went to school, and um, where this gentleman, the Swede, went, there's still a trophy case with his trophies in it. He was a Jewish high school sports star, absolutely as the Swede is in the film and in the novel. Uh, his daughter didn't become radicalized and blow up anything. I don't know that he had a daughter, but he, but he certainly wrote about this hero that, that was a real hero from his high school, yeah. Wow, okay, because I know that Philip Roth writes fiction, but very often that fiction does have some grounding either in his experience, goodbye Columbus, whatever, or in somebody else's experience, so that answers the question. Um, I also wanted to know, and I'll start maybe with Jennifer Connolly about this, whether being directed by your co-star is in fact any different from being directed by a so-called filmmaker. And the reason I'm starting with you is because this was also the case with Ed Harris, mm -hmm. because you were in Pollock. And that was yeah. Ed Harris's debut as a director in addition to starring in the film. Is the dynamic any different? It's um, not very dissimilar from uh, the, the rhythm of um, working with a director who is not in the film. Um, the only time I noticed a, a difference in the rhythm is, you know, perhaps after the first take, uh, Ewan would go and watch um, playback, you know, to confirm, you know, to see if you wanted to adjust anything or had any sort of major notes. And then we would go back, and after that, we would just be in the scene together, working together until, um, he felt that he was happy and, and had it, and um, sometimes would review. But frankly, I've worked with actors who do that too, who get up after a take and say, oh, I just want to go check the monitor. So it's, it's pretty, um, felt pretty similar. One thing that um, Ewan did, which actually I remember doing with Ed a couple of times, so he had completely private rehearsals. And Ed, I remember Ed at one point saying, okay, just to sort of ramp up uh, into the scene, let's go play the scene before, and, uh, and then we'll come down into it. So sort of extremely 
performance friendly in that way. Um, Ewan um, would have, we would have completely private rehearsals in the morning before we would start working, um, before anyone else from the, from the crew would see the scenes. We would go in together, the cast, um, you know, just the three of us, or if it was a scene with you and just with the Swede and Dawn, we would just be the two of us in a room with the door closed and we could um, explore the scene unobserved, uh, which was really wonderful. Um, and uh, I found that very valuable. And um, the only, only other time I had seen that was working with Ed. And for you, I mean, I, I don't recall from glancing at your filmography if any of the directors you've worked with were also actors. I mean, I'm recalling Spielberg and um, some other very fine director, Bill Condon. But was the experience any different for you, given that he was your co-star? Really wasn't. I think if anything, it was um, felt more um, safe and comfortable. Like I, I don't. It it really. Um, no, it was a really wonderful experience. And I think Ewan wanted the actors to feel as comfortable as possible. And um, you know, a lot of the scenes in this film call for a lot of vulnerability and and um, to sort of open yourself up. So I think he just wanted to make it um, as safe a space as possible. So. It felt wonderful to me. And did you have a rehearsal period prior to shooting in addition to these private moments? We had a, we had a period of a week when the actors were there before we started shooting. And we had a lot of screen tests, camera tests for, because we went through so many ages. And so we tested all of those looks, you know, makeup, hair, costume. And um, in the evenings, we would rehearse for two or three hours, and it was mainly table read. I mean, in fact, it was only table. We'd sit around, much like you do in the early days of rehearsing on, on stage, and we would read scenes aloud and then discuss them. And um, we did that from Monday to Thursday. And on the Friday, the art department had prepared the house, and we started shooting in the, in the Lvov house. And so we went all we went out as a cast to the house, and we rehearsed all of the scenes that we were going to shoot over the next 10 days, more or less, in, in situ in those rooms. Um, that were already dressed and ready to go. And then that was all Friday morning. Uh, and then after lunch, I went off with little Hannah, and we shot the scene coming along the side of the river where I pick her up and swing her around. And it was a little cheeky pre-shoot day. And it was, um, it gave me, a, it was, it, I'll never forget, like, arriving and getting out of the car to go and shoot the first, my first scene of a movie. Like, it was really something else. And, um, I sort of glad that we were able to do it then on, on that afternoon. And it was also a very beautiful place and um, with little Hannah, and it was just great. And, and we shot the scene, and it worked. You know, I, I went, oh, no, I can do this. I can do both. It's going to be okay. <laughs> and then when I arrived on Monday morning, to sh really to start shooting the film, I'd, had, I'd already sort of popped my cherry, is the expression I've got in my head. But anyway, you know what I mean. <laughs> you know what I mean. I'd already done it before slightly, so. <laughs> That's good. Now, because you're playing characters at at least uh, three, <laughs> three different stages, decades apart, did you have the ability to shoot relatively chronologically in sequence or not at all? No, not really. I mean, it's location-based, really. All of those, yes, yeah, sometimes it's to do with um, period. We did it in the house. I mean, in the house, I suppose, we tried to keep things... Nah, we couldn't but, really. Because then sometimes it's day you and night. You can't, it's day and night, you're inside, outside. You know, you, you, you're, you're, you're restricted by locations, generally speaking. So, you know, 
you pay for the location for the week and not for the six weeks, you know. So you, you shoot everything in that one location. So no, we were jumping all over the place. And even in the house, we would be shooting 1962 in the morning and 1973 in the afternoon and, <laughs> you know. But it was fun, it was fun that way. Um, and uh, I know it worked. Now, you just mentioned the 60s, which is, of course, almost another character in this film. And obviously, it's a very different um, story if one is dealing just with the Lvov, with the idyllic American family, the beautiful um, beauty queen, the, the daughter who's so adorable, and except for her stutter, she'll be fantastic. But it's the press of the time. It's, it's, it's the title. I mean, American pastoral that by the end of the film has the quality of a nightmare. Um, I won't go as far as to say, like, the nightmare of Requiem for a dream, you know, I'll never forget Jennifer Connelly's performance in that film, and that's a different kind of nightmare that is far more internal, I think, than the external realities, the political pressure that one feels in the film. Um, I was young and, and actually grew up in the 60s. I mean, I remember the Vietnam War, and I remember what it was like to see images on TV like the one Mary re re reacts to of the monk, you know, the, turning himself on fire. And it's, it's horrible stuff, but for you now, I mean, this is a film made in 2016 that takes a novel of 1997 to look back on the era between 51 and, let's say, uh, the late 60s and beyond. And how did you... How did, I'm curious, when did each of you even learn about sort of that period? For you, this would be a very different kind of question. At what point did something like the Vietnam War or Watergate or a sense that this country may not be the pastoral and the ideal that the 50s suggested it would be? I guess what I'm asking for is perhaps unfair because you're, you're not necessarily the spokespeople for Philip Roth's novel, but... I, I, I want to know, how can I react to this film in the most intelligent possible way? What makes this idyllic life turn so dark? Can we blame it on politics, culture, psychology? I mean, a combination thereof. Did any of you think about that while you were making the film? I think it's all, he, he presents all of those and many, many more ideas as to why Mary might have done what she did. Well, and it's up to you to decide at the end of the day if you agree with any of them. Uh, it's almost not for us to say. I mean, my, my belief is that none of them are. You know, Mary blows up the post office because Mary blows up the post office. That's what I think at the end of the day, or at least that was my takeaway from the novel. But, you know, you might think that Dr. Sheila's right. You might think that um, this girl could only, sub could only express herself in some other way with this couple who don't, who don't have any spiritual life or, I don't know. I think they're, I think they're pretty good parents, my, myself. And I, I think Roth writes almost rather contemporarily about this, especially about the Swede, a man in the 60s, a businessman in the 60s, who takes so much time with his child. With his child. And during the, the passage in the book where Mary's, she's gone to New York and she hasn't come home and they don't know where she stayed, and they stop her going for the weekend. And there's, this lot, there's a little passage in the book which is repeated conversations about Mary going to New York. And it starts, Mary going to New York, number one conversation. And it's, it's all the Swede driving it. No, we've got to talk to her. We've got to keep talking to her. He's sort of like a modern father. So I don't know that he's laying... I don't know. It's, it's up for grabs. 
No, and in I'm... terms of the period, you're right. I wasn't alive in the 60s to go to... None of us were there. And we... And we, we but but we, we have this amazing manual of how to make this movie, which is Philip Roth's novel, American Pastoral. And then, you know, we've got... And then you have to learn about the things you don't know about. I knew I had, like, quite a lot of understanding about Vietnam and the politics around Vietnam. I certainly had a strong sense about post-war America and what that might have been like in the 50s and the American dream and the 60s and the fact that there was bombing. You know, this clip in the movie we found saying from January of last year to April of this year, there are over 4,000 bombings in America. I didn't know that. I, I, that was something that wasn't in my knowledge at all. So um, those things you just have to go out and learn about. You know, you've just got to find out what was going on. And I don't know if either of you did any particular research into the time period or just used the script as your point of departure. I did. I used the script and my knowledge that I knew from my education. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to come back to that because I know that you... Well, actually, I, it's a question that I have for both of you, which is not directly related to American pastoral, but since we don't have that much time, I will ask it. I found it striking when I was preparing for tonight that... Both of you had started out as child actors. I mean, I, I realized that even though the images I had of you were completely from this film, if I went back and remembered Sergio Leone's Once, a Time, Once Upon a Time in America, that was, you were a little girl in that. And then, of course, I Am Sam with Sean Penn which was 2001. You were eight years old, and basically that was your... Yeah, six. And I, forgive me if I, you were six when you <laughs> were shooting it, and then eight. turned seven, and then seven when it came out. And then eight when you got nominated for a SAG Award, because I remember you were the youngest, right? Yep. Okay. So, um, <laughs> my, my question really is, how were you able to balance growing up on screen with growing up internally, education, you know, becoming a vital young woman as opposed to merely an actress. You know, I, I'm curious for both of you. Um, for me, school was very, very important. Um, it was really a haven for me. I went to wonderful school here. In, I grew up here in New York. I went to a school called St. Anne's, which I was there. Um, <laughs> some of you know it. <laughs> Um, it was very important to me. I had amazing teachers, and it was really a wonderful community, and I think um, provided a lot of balance for me and um, consistency and uh, just a great network and community. Um, and then, uh, but I think actually the truth is it took me a while to achieve that. I think that it kind of, um, in a way, because I was sort of play-acting at being a grown-up, um, because I um, felt like that was kind of what was being asked of me, was to be precocious and <clears throat> responsible and mature on the outside uh, in this very grown-up world with a lot of responsibilities. And so I think actually it was a, maybe it was a slower process of um, finding the work in a way that was more authentic and um, in, in a way learning to work and sort of claim this work as my own um, in a way that it w was creatively fulfilling. Um, yeah, maybe maybe took took me some extra years. Okay, and for you, what I what I do and what I did when I was younger was a great source of pride for me. It was something I was very proud of, and um, acting was 
and being on a set was um, somewhere that I felt very comfortable and safe. And I never looked at it as this sort of evil beast that it's talked about a lot or ask, you know, people ask me these questions about like, hasn't your life been so difficult? And, you know, mm -hmm. um, and the truth is that it has, but for other reasons, <laughs> for reasons that we've all experienced. And it's hard, it's hard for me to know to quite ha to have perspective on it yet because I'm still I'm still young and it just is my life, you know. And and you've been studying at NYU, mm -hmm. is that right? Mm -hmm. And so you've been able to, you know, not neglect that that part of your life even as you do so many films. No, yeah, I was I was homeschooled until I went to high school. I went to a regular high school and then yeah, NYU after. Okay. And then I have one more question before uh, we're soon going to open it up to the audience. I, I couldn't help but think about something that I, I was reading, um, namely, Jennifer Connelly, you grew up with a Jewish mother and Catholic father. So I was wondering whether the tensions of the American pastoral, the beginning mixed marriage thing had any personal resonance for you. And then, of course, I want to ask the same question of you and McGregor, because though you are not Jewish, your wife is, and I gather your four daughters are Jewish. So just whether that had, whether that had a personal resonance in terms of the film. Not with my parents. My parents, um, it was not an issue in our household, but my grandparents it was. Um, uh, so there were some tensions there in terms of some of the choices that my parents made. Uh, I wasn't privy to all of them, but I knew I had to pretend I wasn't going to a school called St. Anne's for a little while with my grandparents. And it was kind of a little bit uncomfortable that the kindergarten was actually held in a church. And I think my dad was actually asked to convert to Judaism to marry my mom, technically, although he was never <clears throat> religious. It was more of a formality. Um, so there were definitely, um, you know, with my grandparents, there were there was some tension. Right. As there would be with Lou, mm -hmm. for example, yeah. <laughs> okay, and for you? Yeah, for me, it's, it's my, I mean, it's really my second Jew that I've played, uh, really, I guess, because in Rodrigo Garcia's play, uh, film, I played a Jew called um, Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, <laughs> So this was... Since I, I fear that many people in this audience did not see this fascinating You've film that was released it. about three months ago. It's called Last Days in the Desert. It's directed by Rodrigo Garcia, a name I've mentioned a few times on this stage over the years because I think he's such a gifted director who made Mother and Child, Albert Knobs, things you can tell just by looking at her. It's one of the most extraordinary double performances that I've seen in years where Ewan McGregor plays both a struggling Yeshua or Jesus in the desert, and the devil. He plays both characters, the devil as a double of Yeshua. So, I'm sorry. So, it's worth a, It's definitely a beautiful movie if you haven't seen it. You see it? I'll be selling DVDs in the void <laughs> as you leave. Um, no, for me, it was very important, you know, for my Jewish family. Um, it's funny, it's sort of coincidental, I suppose, but maybe not. You know, I'm, uh, this is a story about a Jewish man and the father of a daughter, and there's so many similarities. I, I, saw, I saw how my wife's faith strengthened as we had our children, how um, it became more and more important to her than it had been when, maybe when we first met. And um, all my children, except for my youngest, have been bat mitzvahed. One of my daughters we adopted. She's a Mongolian girl, but she converted. So it's been a part of my world. And in actual fact, in terms of faith or spirituality, it's been the only faith, because I, I grew up without religion, 
I didn't have any of that to, side of life to, ha- to pass on to my children. And as the Jewish faith passes down through the mother anyway, there they are, they're my little Jews. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and it's been great, I've, I've, I've really loved it. I've, I've got a lot out of it, you know. So it's nice, and I, it was very important to me at the end to hear the Mourner's Kaddish read, and, and to remind the audience, because the, the Swede forgets, or does he, or turns his back, you could say, or uh, his faith becomes less important. I mean, there's some lovely discussions in the book about the, the Catholic iconography that Mary has in her bedroom and how the Swede tries to persuade her to hide it when Lou comes over, and there's some lovely stuff in there. But um, it was nice to remind the audience at the end with the funeral that this was a Jewish man, and yeah. Yeah. So hopefully my mother-in-law will be very proud in Paris when she sees the film. <laughs> I have a lot more questions, but knowing that some of you do as well, we're going to raise the lights just a little so that I can see the hands that go up. Um, and I'm going to call on them. I, I know a few of you have to go to your parked cars, but um, <laughs> yes, right on the aisle over there. Hello. The question is, to what, how closely did you stay with the screenplay adaptation related to the novel? Very closely. There's, there are lots of things that happen in the novel that don't happen in the movie, of course, because one's a novel of many pages and one's a one-hour-50 movie. And, um, but the story, I think, uh, John Romano beautifully wrote this, pulled the central story out of Philip Roth's novel and what we do is try and present some of the thoughts thereafter with the movie. There are, there are storylines. The Swede goes on to marry again. He has sons. Um, and that, we didn't feel that that was necessary in the film, but, the, but the, the, very closely. Okay, so it, how much did it change in the editing? And how much did the film change in the editing process? From the adaptation? Not very much. Not really very much. We had a, there's maybe... There's a couple of scenes that we dropped because they didn't work in the, in the larger story. But um, yeah, very little. I mean, I didn't change the order of the score. Some directors re... And I was encouraged to do it by some of my director friends at a certain point in the edit to, to now just throw it about, start at the end, go to the middle, you know, change the order. And I never felt like I, I didn't see why I would want to do that like waste a couple of weeks in the edit doing something I didn't think I was going to do anyway. I didn't have the time. So um, what you see is pretty much what John wrote, yeah. Thank you. Yes.
I'm just going to stop for one second because I'm never going to remember everything you're saying, just so the people on the other side can hear. It's a question that has to do with the way that the film seems to undermine stereotypes so that you have a father who seems very maternal, a mother who may not be quite as maternal as you think, and the rebellious child in an era that was dominated by male rebellion is female. Okay, I think I got so far so good. Okay, and so and, and finally, even though you're supposed to always trust a psychiatrist or whatever psychologist, um, this is not necessarily a trustworthy character, leading to the question for the actors of the extent to which they related to the complexity, to the layers of the characters. And by the way, I, I, I have to mention, because no one said it yet, one of the things that from the novel that I recall is that the Swede, Lvov is having an affair with the speech therapist, with the, the psychologist. That's not in the film. Talk about not quite trusting that character. Um, I don't know whether at any point you... It's not, it does, it's not, it's, it's a very offhand. I had no idea why uh, Roth writes about that. But he does, he, he has a, he has a, he has a very brief affair. He's not having an affair through no, the length of the movie. a short affair. Uh, when, when Don is in, um, when Don is in the asylum, he finds himself having a quick affair with, with the doctor, yeah. But it's never explored after that. It's very... True. It's never uh, explored in the novel very much. Okay. But anyway, to go back to your yeah, original question, I guess the, whether it was harder, given Both. that there were so many layers of the character, that... Yes, I don't is, know. Is that the, the question? Well, it, um, I, it was one of the things that I found really intriguing in the novel and that I loved in the film. Um, I think all of the... I think it explores judgment to an extent, and our tendency to take very black and white positions with one another and jump to conclusions about one another. I really felt that Dawn struggled with that, people making decisions about her character and the nature of her character based on very superficial criteria. And I think that, that everyone suffers that to an extent in the film. And then, of course, you have the whole thing is told from the point of view of this narrator, so you have to question how reliable any of it is. Um, it's all projection. Um, and then I love that bit at the end that says, we get each other wrong. And that's how we know we're human, is we get each other wrong. And I think that's a really interesting conversation to have, to think about the ways in which we judge one another and jump to conclusions about one another. And that was one of the things that I loved about it, and one of the things that I like about acting in you know, in general, is getting to spend time with a character who maybe makes choices that I can't imagine I would ever make, and who's who doesn't um, who doesn't feel familiar to me, um, and yet, or resemble me, and yet um, I have to spend the time to kind of understand that character's point of view and to have compassion for that character. And I had a lot of I don't think that I'm like Dawn, but I had a lot of compassion for what she went through and love for her, um, even though she made choices that I felt were, um, were different than I would make. Yeah, and for you? 
I think for me, I never really feel the need to be able to necessarily relate to the characters that I play. And it's almost more interesting to play characters that you don't relate to, that you can't totally understand. Um, Mary, for me, when I, when, I first, when I first read this character, she's kind of a dream come true because she is so complicated and, um, and hard to figure out. And um, so, yeah, I did the best I could, but I, I was interested that, that she was a difficult character and I didn't want to try to simplify her. Okay, and there was a question here. First of all, amazing performances by all of you. Thank you. Thank you. The question is about, for each of them, do you prefer when there are a lot of takes or fewer and then move on? And did that change at all for you and McGregor as an actor once you are directing? I don't like, I don't like lots of takes for the sake of it. I like enough takes to do your best work, that's all. And um, generally speaking, I find that that's somewhere between one and ten, you know, <laughs> depending on what you're doing. Any more than that, I, I, I'm, I, I start doing not such good work. I start doing work that's uh, hoping the director's going to say, let's move on, because <laughs> it gets tedious, you know. Um, I know there's some directors, and there's a lot of discussion about it recently, about, you know, d directors that exhaust their actors by doing 40, 50 takes. Kubrick used to do lots and lots of takes because they're trying to find some truth beyond the act. But... I think that's sort of an anti-actor stance. It's like you, you, you don't trust the actors to, to come up with good work. You have to exhaust them or something. I don't really understand it. I like, I really do trust actors, and I think we are able to do work in less takes. So for me, fewer. And, 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 and in this experience as a director, it was the same. We did, we did enough takes that we, as we needed to, and it was never very many. Sometimes it's a technical, if it's an action sequence or cars or something, then it can ne necessarily take more takes to get everything right. But um, no, it was, pretty, it was pretty average on this film, I think. Mm -hmm. And do you prefer fewer, more, or? I prefer enough to feel that you've got it and then move on. But the le the, my least favorite thing is when you know you've done it as best you're ever going to do it, and they say, oh, let's just do one more. And you go, oh, why? Like, we already yeah. did it so we, good. We like, it, it's yeah. going to be a letdown. Like, yeah. the next one will always be a letdown because it will never be, you know, that feeling only comes one time usually. Mm -hmm. mm. And for you? Yeah, there's no magic number and every scene is different. I think sometimes I feel like we do things and after two or three takes, you feel like, oh, those are, I feel okay with that. And sometimes there's still something that, I mean, there have absolutely been scenes where I feel like we do eight takes and I'm still feeling like there's something I'm looking for, but you just have to say, okay, let's just, let's, we have to move on. <laughs> um, and I, I wish that I could just keep going until I've, you know, um, found that thing that I think I'm looking for. Um, but for the most part, uh, yeah, so I guess it, it really depends on, on the scene. Gentleman there. Yeah. 
The question is a storyline about Mary's line to the Swede about her not sending Rita. She's very ambiguous, Rita. She's m mysterious. And we don't, know, we don't know exactly who she is in the novel or in the movie. And, uh, and I like that. I like that ambiguity. Um, she's, got her, she's wearing her jacket. She knows all about her life. So she clearly does know her. But um, my understand, my, well, it doesn't matter. But you can make up your own mind. I'm sure she's not using her real name with the Swede. So, and she might be using her real name with Mary. So um, she doesn't know who Rita Cohen is. And I also, I, I imagine that uh, Mary doesn't know that Rita's been missing her father. Whatever is behind it, it's something that she's doing personally to the Swede, because the Swede to her is the enemy. He's a capitalist pig, and um, what she says to him at the top of that parking lot is what I think she thinks about it. He's the, he's, he's the enemy. So, um, but I like that you get to make up your own minds. I've got a complete history of Rita in my head, but I, I, I won't bore, it with you, bore you with it. But, but actually, in some ways, I find among the most chilling scenes in the film are the two with Rita. The first one, I mean, because she seems like such a sweet thing and how, how kind that a pair of gloves are, are being made for her. And when she turns and says she wants her, it's, 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 my, I, the blood runs cold yeah. kind of thing. But then the scene where she's apparently trying to seduce him, although it's not clear whether this is in fact a seduction, a power game, does she want to have something to incriminate with? But what comes through is the ultimate decency of your character. I mean, the way that this Seymour is conceived and played by you is, I mean, he's, he's so much more a victim throughout this story than I would have assumed could be the case in a Philip Roth novel. But I think the Rita character is really the catalyst for whatever it is that you have to do vis-a-vis -vis Mary. Mm. Yeah, I, I like that scene very much. Yeah. She's brilliant, Valerie Curry, who plays Rita. Quite brilliant performance. And she presents four different sides to herself, and yet somehow they're all Rita Cohen, and it's due to her skill as an actor, I think, Valerie's. Yeah. Um, yes, right there. Mm-hmm. It's amazing to see all of you because you all look just as beautiful as I had imagined. The question is, to, to what extent is the current turbulence of our times something that you were conscious of or thinking about as you approached playing characters in this turbulent previous time? I think with all any creative, um, whether it's a piece of art or theater or a movie or a poem, whatever, it makes you think about, you, it makes you reflect upon your own experience it makes you feel, that's what we're trying to do, make you feel, and when you feel something, you're questioning, why do I feel like that? I was because of this. And so that's about who we are now, in this day, in this moment now. And you can't help it. That's, that's what creation is, I suppose. 
Um, and, and, the, and running up towards making this film, yes, you couldn't help but notice there was, uh, sadly, things that were still going on today. Um, however, I think it's true to say and it wasn't, we weren't motivated to make American Pastoral now because it was relevant or because there are, you know, political radical bombings going on or uh, race riots in the streets. It, it wasn't a motivation for making the film. The only time that I, that I, I mean, I was looking at images when we were in the prep. We shot the film in Pittsburgh, and there was images on the news of um, African-American people in the street with National Guardsmen's tanks and Humvees from today. And, the, and it was, seemed to me to be this very similar image to the images I was looking at in the very long and lengthy and rather boring documentary that there is about the Newark riots in 67. Very similar imagery. And so when we, when we staged the street scene or the, that Vicky Uzo Aduba, who's another wonderful actor in this film, uh, witnesses from the window, it was inspired by things I was seeing in the news from today, of course. I wanted an African-American man to be dragged and beaten by a white policeman. And that was, that's the only time I, I remember thinking, okay, I'm making a point about now, then. Really, the, the bombing, the radical, the, the politics, um, I was very much inspired to try and make the film that Roth, you know, the version of Roth's novel, which was very much about that unique time in the 60s when two generations, a generation and their children's generation, collided in such a spectacular way. Okay, this will be the last question. It's a this is a question about the preparation, since you were not yet born at the time of these events. Did you read any other books or do any other kind of research in order to get a better grasp of these characters? I did have, I had copies of, there's lots of books written by members of the Weatherman Underground. And I didn't particularly focus on one or another. I sent one to you. Yeah. I and um, we, we, I dipped in and out of those books because they're, I had, I had Philip Roth's novel, you know, and I, I, I was spending so much time in that novel. Um, but I did, find, I did find interesting thoughts about those. And there's some great, there's some great, uh, there's a great documentary about the Weatherman Underground and, the, and that era. I can't remember the name of it. Maybe it's just called the Weatherman Underground. But uh, that was very useful to me because, you know, we used a little bit of um, stock footage from there at the end when you see the people on the streets with the helmets on, police motorcycle helmets and whatever. Um, but there wasn't one book in particular that I can remember, no, other than Roth's novel. I think that what your question is pointing us to is that even though this is adapted from a fictional work, there is such a sense of authenticity and coherence in the film, how these characters fit together as a family, even in their disjointedness, and how they express the tensions of the time. Um, it's opening October 28th at the Lincoln Plaza, the landmark Sunshine, and um, I think we are very fortunate that we're among the first to see such an enigmatic, thoughtful, poignant portrait that showcases tremendous performances in the service of a story that still resonates today.
Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org.